0: For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. It's almost Purim, which means, of course, that it's about time to start thinking about Pesach. (laughs) And uh, when I think of Pesach, when I think of the Seder, one of the first things that comes to mind is the part in the Haggadah that's known as Dayenu where we sing about all of the great things that God did for our ancestors when they left Egypt in a way that's kind of ironic, talking about how if God had only taken us out of Egypt, dainu would have been enough. If God had only brought us to Mount Sinai, dainu would have been enough. If God had only given us Torah, dainu it would have been enough. If God had only instructed us to build a tabernacle, Dayenu, it would have been enough. It's ironic because, of course, none of those things are true. None of those steps on their own would have been enough. That the Exodus was always leading to the trajectory of Sinai, Mishkan, Eretz Israel. That the purpose of the Exodus was not the liberation of the Israelites alone, the construction of a society founded in Torah that would then bring God's presence to dwell on earth. And so, in some ways, the commandment we receive at the beginning of this week's Torah portion, the Asuli Mikdash, Veshachanti Bitokham, make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you, is the trajectory toward which the Exodus tends. It's the purpose of the liberation from Egypt itself. So the Midrash teaches, Amar Rabbi Yishmael Baraba, Rabbi Shmuel Baraba, Rabbi Shmuel Baraba says, baruchu, shek lo dira l'mala, kach lo dira l'mata. That God desires, just as God has a dwelling place up high, that God would also have a dwelling place below, in our world, in our realm hu omer la Rishon. And so God said the following to the first human being. That just as I am the ruler up high, I will make you, Adam the first, first human being, I will make you the ruler below but the first human being didn't do that he didn't listen to God's voice so when that first human being committed that first transgression God removed God's presence from him and when the people Israel came onto to the scene, when the people of Israel were created, God said to them, You should certainly know, God says to the Jewish people, that you will only be redeemed from Egypt, that I will only take you out of Egypt on the condition that that you make for me a tabernacle, <speaking in Hebrew> that my presence may dwell among you. <speaking in Hebrew> As it says in our Torah portion this morning, that you shall make for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. I only took you out of Egypt, God says, in order for you to build me a sanctuary that my presence may dwell among you. The purpose the Jewish people is to make of this world a place fit for the dwelling of the divine presence. God has a dwelling place on high. It's our responsibility to make this world a fitting dwelling place for God in our realm. That's the Jewish mission. That's the Jewish responsibility. That's why we are taken out of Egypt. That's why we're brought to the land of Israel. That is the charge that the Jewish people have in this world, to make a sanctuary so that God may dwell among us. Now our Torah portion this morning talks in great detail about the construction of that sanctuary. But there is one passage that's not in our Torah portion that nevertheless deals with the construction of the sanctuary, and it ends up being one of the most important components not only of constructing the Mishkan, the tabernacle but also ultimately the construction of the temple in Jerusalem and God willing the, dis- the construction of the next temple may it happen soon in our days. In the Torah portion a couple of weeks ago at the end of Parashat Yitro we received the following commandment <speaking in Hebrew> If you make for me a uh, altar of stones, you should not make it out of hewn stones. And so the Midrash asks, why is it? Why can't you make an altar out of hewn stones? This, by the way, if you were following closely in the Haftor portion, is echoed in the Haftor portion, when Solomon constructs the temple in Jerusalem, He takes pains not to use cut stones in the construction of the temple. Not to wield an axe against the stones that are used to construct the temple. So Solomon sees, the Jewish tradition sees that commandment given in earlier in Exodus as an expansive commandment, not just about any old altar of stone that you might construct, but a commandment governing the very construction of the temple itself that you should not use hewn stones, cut stones, stones that have had axes taken to them. You may not use those stones in the construction of the temple. The Midrash teaches about that. Hayar Rabbi Shimon ben Elazar Omer. Beach Excuse me, wrong midrash. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai Omer. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai says, "Mar'a barzel lefasel kulan." Why is it that the Torah forbids iron, the material that one would use to hew stones? Why is it that the Torah forbids? Those tools to be used in the construction of the temple? Why not other metals or other materials? And the answer: Mimnei Shecherev Naset Mimenu. Because that's the material that is used to make swords, that's the material that is used to make weapons of war, tools of destruction. Siman Puraniot, and because a sword is a sign of destruction, umizbeach siman kapara. But an altar is a symbol of atonement. An altar is a symbol of the unification between God and humanity, the indwelling of the divine presence, the ability for us to reconcile with God. Iron is a sign of destruction, and the altar, the temple, is a sign of atonement. And so we set aside something that is a sign of destruction in order to preserve something that is a sign of atonement. The halot dvareim kal The midrash continues: Are these matters not a way of deriving a major principle from a minor principle? Uma avanim she'enan l'root veloshamot velomedabrots al biglal she'metilots kapara. Just as stones that can neither see nor hear nor taste, nor smell, nor feel, nor talk. That we care about them because they can affect atonement, they can affect reconciliation between God and humanity. Between the Jewish people and their Father in Heaven. Amar So God says, You shall not wield Iron against those stones that are going to be used in the temple. Just as that is true, B'nai Torah. Children of Torah. Students of Torah. People who strive to live the values of the Jewish tradition. Shehem ro'im v'shomim u'medabrim u'mevi'im Kaparale, That we who have the ability to see and hear and speak and to bring atonement into the world? Allah Kama Vakama. Is it not all the more so true? The Midrash says, that we should not take up iron, utilize iron, hold that material that is used primarily to create weaponry that we should not touch anything that causes harm and destruction in the world. Think about this for a moment. The purpose of the Jewish people is to cause God's presence to dwell on earth. And the one rule that is given to us in how we make this world a fitting place for the dwelling of the divine, is that we do not wield weaponry. That we do not wield iron. We do not create and hold and honor and utilize weapons of war. Now Solomon follows this guidance in constructing the temple. And then you might ask yourself, why is it that Solomon constructs the first temple in Jerusalem? King David was a favored king of God, ruled for 40 years, united the Jewish people, established Jerusalem as his capital. Why is it that King David doesn't build the temple in Jerusalem? And the books of the prophets say that King David was prohibited from building the temple. Because he was a man of war. Because he had blood on his hands. And nobody who wields weapons of war, nobody whose life is spent as a warrior, can merit to build the structure that is going to cause God's presence to dwell on earth. The use of weaponry, the institution of war disqualifies King David from, cu- from building the structure that enables God's presence to dwell on earth. And if it's true of King David, how much the more so is it true of us? That how can we build a world that is a fitting dwelling place for the divine when we permit the proliferation of weaponry? When we allow anybody who wants access to the most dangerous weapons available. Now I recognize that for many of us in this room, what I am saying is what they say in Hebrew, Pshita, is obvious. And I know that for many people in this room, what I am saying is self-evidently wrong. That of course we're allowed to use weapons. Of course we're allowed to have weapons. Weapons enable us to be protected. And the truth is, I don't think I'm going to convince anybody on that side of the conversation about the point I'm trying to make that I think is derived pretty directly from our Torah portion. And I lament that. But I'm not that persuasive. But I've been thinking about this a lot. Because it seems to me that our tradition holds this value. That there's something defiling about bloodshed. And there's something defiling about the proliferation of the tools that cause bloodshed. So much so that... Later, So you might say, okay, the purpose of the Jewish people isn't so much to build the tabernacle, but to inherit the land of Israel. And in Deuteronomy it says that the disqualifying factor from being in the land is that bloodshed defiles the land. And when the land is defiled through bloodshed, it will spit you out, the book of Deuteronomy says. So okay, maybe it's not to build the tabernacle, maybe it's to inherit it the land, but still, the principle holds. That what disqualifies us from doing the task that we are supposed to do in this world, that we are called to do in this world, what defiles it, what disables us from doing it, what disqualifies us from doing it, is by holding and glorifying weapons of war. And so it seems to me that there is a strong thread. Within the Jewish tradition, that would say bearing arms is not necessarily a right. It's silent on that question. But it is certainly not silent on the question of the responsibility that we have vis a vis those arms which is to say we must not hold them, and it is impossible to create a world that's a fitting dwelling place for the divine when they are used and when they are present. Now again, I don't think that I'm going to convince people who, from a prima facie position, disagree with me. And so I feel stuck About this, because I feel like I'm speaking into the hurricane, shouting into the hurricane. And so, for that, I am grateful to have great rabbis who I think articulate a way forward from that frustration in a way more convincing and more beautiful than I could. And so today I just want to share with you messages from two of my rabbis. First is my rabbi in Los Angeles, the Rabbi of Icar, Rabbi Sharon Browse, who writes the following: What will we do with all this anger?" A few years ago, my family and I were doing home visits with elderly residents of an impoverished neighborhood in Lima, Peru. One evening, as we neared our last visit of the day, the volunteer coordinator told us to make it quick, because it was dangerous to be in that neighborhood, rife with violence at night. In the small home, we found an elderly couple and their son, who was incredulous when he learned that we live in the United States. Aren't you afraid, he asked? Afraid of what, we responded. All the guns, he said. Anyone in America who wants a gun can get one. Step back half an inch and you realize how insane our normal is. Yes, I was afraid, but more than afraid, I was outraged. It had been three years since Sandy Hook. The whole world had witnessed how the NRA and their congressional cronies have manipulated the tragic murder of children into a steadfast commitment to loosen gun restrictions, ensuring that truly anyone in America who wants a gun can get one, all while claiming, of course, to be pro-life. Another, after another school shooting, the 18th, in six weeks, I am again indignant. I'm indignant for the parents who spent hours Wednesday afternoon waiting on a street corner to see if their kids would emerge alive or dead. And those right now nervously pacing the hospital corridors. I'm angry that students that across the country students are afraid to go to school because they know that sometimes just about 3 times a week in the US a guy walks into a classroom with a gun. They go into lockdown. And not everyone makes it out alive. I'm indignant witnessing the soul decay of our nation. Our nation, the most powerful in the world, which teaches its citizens that we are completely powerless to act against the man-made disasters that are destroying us. Our nation in which we're forced to sit again through the predictable parade of politicians with A plus ratings from the NRA offering condolences and laying blame anywhere but on the AR-15 and magazine clips used to murder those kids and their teachers. How can we not be outraged? Another young man with white supremacist leanings and a history of mental illness who abused his girlfriend and posted pictures with firearms on social media was able to legally purchase deadly weapons. I'm angry that lawmakers are using this tragedy as another opportunity to stigmatize those who struggle with mental illness, while both cutting funding for their care and making it easier for them to purchase guns. I'm angry that this week we had to add another American town to our national map of shame, piled high with stuffed animals and flowers and broken hearts and homes. I'm a rabbi in the hope and love business, and here I am full of fury. Punch the steering wheel and scream at the TV fury. But today I'm not afraid of indignation. Anger can disease the soul or it can liberate it. Anger that's driven by hope and love can be a tool for transformation. As much as anger can incite violence, anger can also incite change. I'm not waiting for the governor, the president, the speaker, or the majority leader to find a conscience, to think about those kids, your kids, and mine. They didn't after Sandy Hook. They won't now. They worship a false god that allows them to justify endangering children, for the sake of garnering campaign donations. They they abide a depraved moral calculus that protecting unrestricted gun ownership is more inviolate than protecting human life. But while our elected officials remain willfully asleep at the wheel, the country is waking up. We're fed up with the desecration of religion through empty prayers and the desecration of patriotism through half mast flags used as props to distract from criminal political inaction. Our leaders aren't leading, so we must. Let our indignation fuel our imagination. Let's stage a national walkout. Imagine millions of students around the country, from middle schoolers to grad students, refuse to go to school, until they can be assured that they'll be safe in their classrooms. Let's create a war chest, a political fund that supports candidates with an F rating from the NRA. And speaking of the NRA, isn't time we out the criminals who are making billions of dollars manufacturing and selling these weapons? Who are they? Why haven't they heard from us? Let's disrupt the safe distance from this issue that has disrupted so many families in America. They need to know that we hold them accountable as long as they continue to profit off our children's blood. We need to support the good organizations working on gun violence protection. They are vastly under-resourced, and they're fighting a behemoth. We all know that it should not be easier to get a gun than buy a Sudafed. We must push our federal and state legislatures to reinstate the assault weapons ban, close the gun show loophole, strengthen laws against straw purchases, demand universal background checks, and stop the concealed carry reciprocity bill in Congress now. On Wednesday, a girl named Hannah texted her sister from school. I'm not joking. They just shot through the walls. Someone in my class is injured. I'm not joking. Call mom and dad. Tell them I love them so much. I'm so scared. I love you. This ought not be, in America or anywhere. Now we act for Hannah's sake, and for her classmates who didn't make it home this week. May their memories be a blessing. My teacher, Rabbi Brad Arson, offers this prayer. God of proms and finals, source of first jobs and kisses, you who grant homecomings and great dorm buddies, how we have betrayed you yet again. You trust us with your, with our children, yet our twisted obsession with power and our paranoid evasion of fixing what is broken, drives us, in the face of yet another mass murder, to do nothing. Forgive us, Father, for the sin of daring to offer consolation when for months we've done nothing. Forgive us, Holy One, for the sin of praying for the victims when our passivity is already breeding doom for others. Forgive us, Source of Life, for the sin of merely wringing our hands for restricting, for retreating into indifference and helplessness, when we know that your service and serving those countless victims of gun violence mandates that we hate evil, do justice, pursue peace. Don't pray for the victims. Act. And if we must pray, let us pray for the stain on our own souls for our callousness, our indifference, our surrender to the peddlers of guns and the fanatical phalanx of their apologists. Lord, help us make this world a sanctuary, a fitting place for the indwelling of your presence. We have been told that this is our purpose in the world as Jews. Give us the strength, the conviction, the fortitude, and the spirit to fulfill your wishes speedily in our days. Amen.